Welcome to the Portland Real Estate Podcast, Oregon and Southwest Washington's number one show for real estate news and information. Without further ado, here are your hosts and a couple of guys who as busy realtors and successful brokerage owners know a thing or two about real estate. Steve Nassar of Premier Property Group and Joe Fistolo of Soldera Properties. And we have liftoff. Wow, that was somewhat flawless. <laughs> somewhat. We're getting better, aren't we? Well, I'm a little dizzy because of the ride we just watched. <laughs> yeah. For those of you watching, uh, this is a video podcast too, whether you're watching live or you are watching uh, you know, after it's recorded and been produced. We had a little five-minute countdown to give people time to grab a, something to drink and get comfortable. And it was a five-minute roller coaster ride. So we're all kind of feeling a little queasy here. But since we're all here and it's working and we're recording and all is well, let's jump in. Uh, welcome back to the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are on episode number 141. We have with us today Mark Alto, a lender and an economic forecaster, and he's here to make sense of what we're going through in 2022. Was the roller coaster ride an accident or was that? Yeah, like a roller coaster. Yeah, the bond market (laughs) took a dive. The interest rates are taking a rise and inflation and gas prices and groceries. And uh, and we have a war. So we have (laughs) lots of stuff to unpack. And for the members of Masters in Real Estate, we are serious about always bringing you great content. And the people that we have on as guests are people who are the best contributors of value in the group Masters. And Mark has been so good about selflessly posting things that are amazing for realtors to know that only lenders really know. And he makes sense of it. And we thought this would be great to have him here and unpack some of this stuff. So uh, before we dive in and formally introduce Mark, I want to introduce uh, my co-host, Steve Nassar. Steve, what's happening? Hey, Joe. Hey, Mark. Uh, Excited to be on. It sounds to me like we have some real-time updates about some stuff happening just as we were about to go live on the show. So to piggyback what Joe said, I mean, Mark, you're here purely because you are a valuable contributor to the, the Masters in Real Estate Group. You have a ton of insight and knowledge that you share with us and others through the group. And so this is kind of that way to dive deeper. As we all know, on, on Masters, you can only you can only say so much before it becomes overwhelming and this long and nobody, you know, people don't read it or they skip over it. And But podcasts are different. Right. So there's a lot to unpack in the real estate market, in the mortgage market, the Fed, inflation. We're going to we're going to go into it all. So welcome. Thanks. So just so everybody's really clear here, I'm a nerd, uh, so I don't really have any professional economic background per se. My original background actually was in underwriting. So a lot of times if you're seeing anything I'm writing, it comes from the underwriting background, which I, I worked for HUD for two years, which I can't ever get back, but it was good, good experience for uh, being a loan officer later on. So just want to make it clear that I'm, I'm not, I don't have any like a series seven or any stock brokerage licenses, or I'm just doing my best to observe what's going on and hopefully help, help people get a, um, a little bit of a, a run on stuff before it really starts impacting us. And 
I remember actually in your case, Steve, you had put in a post on masters. I think it was masters and it was fortuitous because what you were asking is there's inflation going on. Why aren't we seeing an impact? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a good question because where we're at right now is 2021 was one of those years where we're just seeing rates stay super, super low while house house prices are, are going up. And even though we're seeing all these reports about inflation going on, we're not seeing it impacting financing. And that's not really what you would normally expect. And as soon as we've hit like January 1 of 2022, it's like someone flipped a switch. And I don't know about you guys, but, and I'm sure there are other loan officers that may or may not be listening right now, but typically right now we're just locking people as soon as we get a contract. And the reason why is because you don't have to be an economic genius to know that if you could get a rate of 3.125 at the beginning of the year, you're now looking at more like four and a half or 4.375, wherever someone's currently priced. We're looking at rates that have gone up, you know, one to one and a half percent. And this is way outside of what any people that have way more like alphabets after their name than I do or any of us do would have predicted, whether it's NAR or however you say that, or whether it's, you know, WFG or any of these different places, I don't think anyone would have expected that the rates would go up this amount. So I guess at this point, number one, it's just surprising that we didn't see some of this last year in terms of impact to rates. And number two, it's hard to gauge, you know, when is this going to stop? You know what I mean? So if you guys don't mind, I'd like to give you just kind of a brief snapshot of just like the last couple of years. Is since March of 2020 to now, we've gone through the stuff with COVID, we've gone through a war, we've gone through all this crazy stuff, bidding wars, cash, all the stuff that's going on in our lives right now, it's kind of crazy. So if you were to do a flashback to January of 2020, for example, things were very different. And just so you guys know, I have no interest in politics in any of this stuff. So this to me is just, it's an observation. It's, this is what I see. This is what I saw. This is what seems to be going on. So in January of 2020, what I would see for headlines and what I would see is affecting rates would have been trade wars with China. And typically the way that things work with rates, with how this whole thing works is rates are tied to something called the bond market. The better that the bond market does, the the lower that rates are. There's an inverted relationship. And typically, the bond market and the stock market go in opposite directions. So if the stock market is doing really poorly, normally the bond market is doing better. And the reason why is because the bond market is where people put their money, that they want to have a safer place to put their money, but they're still going to have a better rate of return than treasuries. So it's considered to be a safe place that you know maybe you park your money when bad things are going on. So in January 2020, what was going on with trade wars was not good for the economy. That's the way that the bond market was reacting. The bond market was getting better because people were worried. Worry is, in a lot of cases, what causes the bond market to do better. Insecurity, things that don't feel like they're going the right way. People don't have as much confidence. They move money out of stocks. They put it into bonds. So people were worried about the trade war. Historically, when the stock market's doing well, rates go up. And when, when, and that's why when the pandemic began and the stock market crashed dramatically, 30, 40% in March of 2020, rates got phenomenally good, right? Because people were, there was a flight to safety in the bond markets. Right. Yeah. And that's the right term too. And so, you know, the general rule of thumb is when we're talking with clients, we say, hey, look, you're looking for bad economic news. If there's bad economic news, that's normally the time to you know keep your rate floated and wait until 
you know, a, a time later in the process to lock in your rate. See if you can basically get some winnings, kind of like gambling, basically. But after the trade stuff, then we got into the pandemic. Then we got into financial instability. We got into issues that were outside of that as, as well. I'm trying to remember what that was. Unemployment. But one of the things that's interesting though, Steve, is in March of 2020, it became so volatile for the bond market that a lot of lenders just threw up their hands. Like some of the websites that annoy us as lenders, like uh, LendingTree or some of those places where people go to get bankrate.com, they were quoting rates of six to six and a half percent. Not because- I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It was was so volatile that someone just picked a random rate because- yeah. That's what lenders have to, like when lenders are too busy, they raise their rates artificially so that they can stem the flow of applicants. So, yeah. so, yeah. so, so I mean, that was one of those times where the government stepped in, you know, they basically tried to solidify things a bit. And, you know, again, we got back to having good low rates for a little while. So for quite a while. Yeah. I'm, I'm right. Amazing rates. I mean, what was the lowest they got, Mark? Was it two? I mean, obviously, you know, as a rule across, was it the mid twos? Was it low yeah. twos? Something yeah, like we that. saw some rates in the ones uh, at one yeah. time or another, like uh, ODVA, which has always had really good rates. I think they were at like 1.875 for that a period of time. That is insane. Yeah. <laughs> right. insane. So, and that was when, and I've seen you recently do some posts and comments about like better.com, which, which is a mortgage company. I, I don't know if you guys know the story of better.com, but apparently about four months ago or three months ago, the CEO held a Zoom meeting with like a thousand people and announced, by the way, if you're on this Zoom, you're being laid off, check your email. You're getting an email from HR. It was videoed by somebody. I watched it. It was pretty interesting. It was being videoed with his phone by somebody. He goes, you effing bastard. Right? <laughs> he, was, he was like, because he was hearing in real time in a very cold, heartless way that he just lost his job. But what that highlights is when the refi boom came, it lifted all boats and everybody yeah. in the mortgage business was just flooded with business yeah. and it's easy business, right? It's easy business. You don't, there's no, there's no hard close dates because of purchases. There's no pesky realtors asking questions. I don't know if you know this, Mark, I was in the mortgage business for eight years. So I, I, I do know, actually, I, I know, I know that business. And, and I, I personally always hated refis for those reasons. And I also hated them because they make people lazy. And ultimately, the analogy I used, I think you'll appreciate this, Mark, is um, refis or purchase business is like you're in an orchard. Like imagine a cherry orchard and you're picking cherries, right? And imagine some you pick situation. Purchase business is like a ladder that you take around with you and, and you you place it by a tree and you climb the tree and you, and you, and you grab some cherries and then you move on and you grab it. In. When refi booms happen, and you were talking about this recently on Facebook. When refi booms happen, it's the equivalent of all the cherries start growing to the ground. What loan officers historically do, and not just loan officers, companies make these decisions. They drop their ladders. They go, don't need that anymore. And they just start grabbing handfuls of cherries everywhere. Their, their, their face is, is, is all red as they're just <laughs> gorging on them. Their buckets are full. And you know what? That They could give a rip about that ladder. They're not calling their realtors anymore. They're not taking them to lunch. They're not you know trying to educate them on the market. And then inevitably, as always happens, the cherries start going up again, right? The refi booms over and all of a sudden they're all in the tippy tops of the trees. 
in this analogy, they start going, well, where's my ladder? And it's nowhere to be found. And they start trying to build a new ladder from scratch, right? So that's an analogy I've used in years past and it kind of conveys well, but you see that we saw the fruits on the ground, eat low hanging fruits for a couple of years where yeah. mortgage companies staffed up, they, they brought in tons of ops people, the loan officers got lazy. All they had to do was turn on their email and they were getting refis left and right. That isn't the case anymore. <laughs> that hasn't been the case for a little while, but you're starting to see the damage happening across the, the mortgage business. And, um, and ultimately, and what we want to discuss too, is how that's going to, in, in the near future, affect real estate business as well. So is it safe to say that the refi business is completely done, even the procrastinators, even the late adapters, is people aren't thinking, hey, at 4.135 or whatever it is, are there still people saying, I better jump in now before it goes higher? Or they probably went down, they probably already did it, right? A cash out refi might happen here and there, or some other unique situation. Maybe they were in a BK and now they're out of it or something. But I mean, right, right, Mark? I mean, how, how many refis are <laughs> happening at this point? Oh, I mean, it's divorces. That's the only thing I can think of right now. Maybe, mm-hmm. uh, maybe loan officers that only did refinances are getting divorced now. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> one of the things, just so you guys know, a couple of tools that you can have as realtors too. One of the things is you can actually use a tool called a uh, consumer NMLS lookup. It just basically, you can look up a loan officer. Uh, if you ever get curious, Hey, what's this guy's background or what's this gal's background? How long have they been in, in lending and stuff like that? You can actually see, you know, maybe they were working for Home Depot like three weeks ago and now they're a lender. But the other thing that you can, another tool is Scottman's guide. A lot of loan officers will put their numbers on there. And the only reason why it may be important sometimes is like, if you look at some of the top loan officers, for example, last year in 2000, they haven't gotten 2021 out there yet, but 2020, for example, some of the loan officers that were posting these insane numbers, you look at the percentage of refis versus purchases. And in a lot of cases, they're like 90% refi, 10% purchase. Those are businesses that are going to fail. And until lenders like Better or some of these other online lenders are, are able to get enough confidence from the market to be able to actually be trusted to do purchases, this is what's going to happen to them every single time. They're going to do really, really well um, in refinance markets when consumers, like you said, Steve, there is no relationship involved. There is no time frame involved. You just basically are looking for the very lowest rate you can possibly get. Here it is. Hey, if it takes 90 days, who cares? I still get the same rate. But when it comes to a purchase, there's only one party involved that you're communicating with. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's reasons why loan officers like refis. There's also reasons why good loan officers like purchases. Cause there's, you know, it's not about the rate as much. It's about the house. The rate's a, a byproduct, a secondary component to buying the house. And when somebody's doing a refinance, the only thing to shop is the rate. When somebody's yeah. buying a house, I mean, there's so much going on in their world. Yeah, they want the best rate, but but that's that's like you know, conversation. You know, one of one of fifty conversations are happening having at that moment. One of fifty endeavors they're undertaking. Well, so, and as a loan officer, I'll tell my team this all the time. I'd much rather do purchases because I have at least one other person that has a vested interest uh, interest in terms of getting to the finish line. And if if I'm not having any leverage with my consumer, if I reach out to a realtor and say, "Hey, look," You know, my customer is not performing. Can you help me get, you know, a little bit of a fire under their ass? 
I can, I can guarantee you that realtors and lenders work really well together when it comes to meeting timeframes. And when you're doing a refinance, there's not the same motivation. And it's mm-hmm. honestly, it's, it's not as much fun. There's a lot mm-hmm. more at risk. There's a lot more at stake on a purchase. And for those of us that like those roller coaster videos at the beginning where you're going up and down and up and down, kind of appreciate the, the stress sometimes as well, you know, the risk and reward element of it as well. Well, and there's 10 people involved, not right? just your buyer, but, you know, the listing agent, selling agent, the seller, the title company, the, you know, appraiser that's going to go out there and appraise it and, you know, inspectors, everything really counts on that buyer performing. You know, there's like 10 people kind of waiting for it to close. Yeah. So get their little reward, whatever, whatever that reward is, you know, closing your house so you can move or making a commission. It's really important. A couple of things happened recently, like three weeks ago, the bond market just got obliterated and it, and it yeah. happened again just recently. Yeah. And so I kind of want to know how that relates to what our interest rates doing now. And maybe if you could do a macro, people hate predicting macro because <laughs> people hold you accountable. Right. But I'm going to do it to you because, you know, you're my favorite nerd. So <laughs> What does this mean for 2022? How high do you think it's going to get? What's it going to do yeah. to prices? We'll, we'll see. see. And, and my concern is that when we had like 2020 and most of 2021, we mainly had single issues. Like, for example, I look at it as the bond market has kind of a flavor of the day. So the flavor of the day might have been unemployment or the flavor of the day might have been something to do with consumer confidence. And so every week there'd be like one report that would come out and you knew like, hey, I'm going to tell my buyers tomorrow, the unemployment report's coming out. If you're a gambler, we can wait until tomorrow and and hope that there's an improvement. If you don't want to gamble, let's lock today because there's more odds against us getting a favorable result tomorrow. And that's really what dominates most of our most of the time I've been a loan officer has been like a single issue is what they pay attention to. And it does shift. Like for a little while, it was the virus. For a little while, it was unemployment, trade war, that kind of stuff. The problem with inflation is inflation is the thing now, period. And the problem is inflation can be, uh, it can be any report that comes out. So you've got CPI, core producer index, you've got PPI that comes out, you've got all these different pieces of data that are coming out. And each one of these pieces of data can have inflationary pressure associated with it. You know, we're seeing, you know, 7% or these different numbers. The trouble is, is that the bond market is looking at, it's not a thing, right? It's, these are representative of people that are making trading choices and all that other good stuff, but they're looking at these daily reports because each day there's two to three different economic reports that come out. And again, we're not looking at a single issue now. I mean, we're, we're looking at an all-encompassing issue, which is inflation. And so inflation can be hidden or right out in front of our eyes in every single one of these reports. Manufacturing is up. That could suggest inflation, right? There are less jobs versus the number of people that are looking for jobs. That could also be inflationary. Same kind of thing with house prices. I mean, we see it in what we do all the time right now. There's way more demand than there is supply right now. And The Fed has traditionally played a big role when it comes to inflation. I think the question mark that a lot of people have right now, that I think all of us have right now, is what is the Fed going to do? And the Fed does not directly impact mortgage rates. That's something that a lot of people get confused. So the Fed just raised basically the prime rate by a quarter percent. We went from three and a quarter to three and a half. And three and a quarter is as low as it can go. So you're not going to have it go any other direction. So this will directly impact credit cards. This will directly impact 
you know, basically any sort of personal loan. It doesn't affect mortgage rates. Now, lines of credit. Yeah. Right. All those different things. So what I'm saying is that the way that the Fed is going to react to inflation is they're going to make borrowing more expensive. They're going to raise rates. And the thing that's frustrating is that one way that you deal with not having enough supplies, you just basically choke up demand, which is in my very, very non-educated, non like lots of different degrees way of looking at this thing is at some point they're going to make rates high enough to where rates will directly impact people's borrowing behavior. And we haven't seen it happen yet. People are, I mean, you guys know this, it's almost like people are panicked out there right now. They're all trying to buy places before the rates get much higher and all that other good stuff. The initial kick up in rate kind of get people, you know, off their butt. The tire kickers jump in and it's like, okay, it's now or never. I procrastinated. Yeah. You know, it's 3 a.m. in the morning and, and your 15 page type paper is due at 9 a.m. <laughs> or you yep. fail. I, I think that's the thing that's sort of artificially keeping this demand so high. I sort of was expecting people just to look at prices and demand and just say, you know what, count me out. I got to compete against 10 other buyers. Homes are going for a hundred or 200 over list price. And you got to, you know, sign your name and blood and give away your firstborn and appraisal gaps. And I figured people would have gotten tired of it prior to the rate, just forcing people out because, yeah. you know, that $600,000 home is such and such a payment if the rate goes up high enough, your $450,000 home is that same payment, right? And not everybody can do that. So no. you think we're going to you think we're going to stay afloat through 2022? We're going to build inventory, do you think? Prices is going to come down a little? One thing I was going to mention, Joe, if you research inflation, it it tends to build on itself and it causes consumers to rush out and buy. And if you think about it, we're seeing this across the spectrum, right? We're, obviously, we're seeing it in housing and we've been seeing it in housing for over a year. Well, just over a year. Now, the Fed was asleep at the wheel for most of that year, saying it was transitory, and this is, you know, this is just supply chain issues. And and I watched a lot of smart talking heads on CNBC go, uh, that doesn't seem transitory to us. We're giving raises to people. When are we going to take those away from them, right? But what inflation does is people realize that things are getting more expensive, so they rush out and buy things, right? Including housing including appliances. When was the last time any of our listeners tried to buy a dishwasher or a stove or a microwave? Good luck, right? Go to Basco and, and see what inventory they have there because it's not good. But that's happened with cars. That's happened with you know most things. Now, again, sometimes you hear supply chain issues and yeah, maybe that exacerbates it, but there's, there's more than just supply chain issues going on. There's a rush for demand which kind of builds the inflation because now you're flooding the system with money. Well, what's inflation? It's 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 too much money in the system. So we're seeing that and it causes the prices to, to continue to go up. There was I was watching CNBC just today and they were interviewing the CEO and they've been saying this for a while. He said, he goes, we keep raising prices and the consumer's not pushing back. Like that's a telltale sign that inflation is starting to slow down consumers pushing back or saying we're not going to stand for any more prices or or they're sitting checking out of the market. 
Nice dog. Apologize, way, apologize to our <laughs> listeners. Mark was barking there for a while. <laughs> but we aren't seeing that. We're seeing it from what I was seeing today on CNBC. I mean, it doesn't look like there's an insight just yet for the inflation. Now, the Fed's coming up to the plate and they're trying to do some stuff, but it's pretty late in the game. It's interesting because the the things that affect the bad news that affect this stuff you know, you might have a skirmish over here where countries are fighting, or you may have, you know, they just released numbers on unemployment rate, and you can gamble on those because it's usually a quick fix. But with inflation, I mean, this is something that could be like a five-year cycle, four-year cycle, right? So it's really kind of hard to predict like, okay, they announced this, so we know what happens to the bond market, we know what happens to the interest rate, and we know what the stock's going to do for you know people's faith in the economy, but it kind of goes away after days or a week or so. But when inflation is a, is a keynote, I mean, we're going to be hearing about inflation for the rest of this current presidency, at least. And most of us haven't seen it in our lives, right? I mean, it's been 40 years since the early 80s since inflation has been even discussed or, or been, been an issue. So, you know, there's been a lot of skirmishes. There's been a lot of, you know, recessions since then. But that's one thing that hasn't, hasn't played into the market. So it is new to most people out there, most of us. And, you know, some of the old timers are familiar with it and have experienced it, but not a lot. So- the other thing about inflation, and this was what my post was talking about, Mark, is it is the arch enemy of mortgage rates, right? And it makes perfect sense. It's not hard to understand why if I'm going to loan Joe a dollar today and inflation's at 7%, I'm probably not excited about getting 3% year over year return on that, right? If the money is going up, the value of money is going up 7% and he's only giving me 3% more than I gave him, right? Steve, so you, would inflation, you would lose 100% of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So inflation pushes- I wouldn't pay you back. <laughs> In fact, it's been, and we kind of started the show a little bit talking about this. It's been crazy to me to watch mortgage rates not go up prior to this year. And I think the, the Fed speak was a lot of that. Do you Would you agree with that, Mark? Well, do you think the Fed saying this is transitory, this is transitory? They were buying the mortgage-backed securities as well. And I, I have they talked about slowing that down? Well, and that's, and that's the thing is I, I feel like they're in a tricky spot right now because like one of the other things that comes up that will typically be good for rates, for example, is again, instability. So we did actually see a little bit of a drop in rates for about four days when the whole thing with Ukraine and Russia started. But the challenge, though, is that, you know, from what everyone's saying, is that we're going to see higher um, energy prices as a result of this, too. So even something that would traditionally be looked at as being something that might be good for bonds is actually going to be ending up being more inflationary again because of what's going on. And Mm -hmm. the other nasty thing here is that when they have the hopefully they get peace talks here soon, right? We None of us really benefit from what's going on over there right now from a humanitarian place. But you know, when they do actually work this stuff out, that's going to take away any of that momentum that was helping bonds for a short period of time. So it's weird how this stuff works. So when you hear news about the, in the coming days about things being worked out between Russia and Ukraine, that could actually also be bad for bonds, which is once again, bad for rates. I mean, I think that if anyone were to have said, I don't remember exactly what NAR's prediction was for rates, but I think it was somewhere roughly around three and a half to 3.75 for the year. 
And it's just like 2022 within about two to three weeks said, hold my beer. Here you go. So it's yeah. like, you know, I, I don't think it would shock me if we hit five to five and a quarter. And we haven't, we haven't been there since about, uh, if I remember correctly, around 2016. 17, 17 yeah. yeah, something somewhere in there. We crept up to five. I remember that. And it, and you felt it in the market. It slowed the market. It was right. a wet blanket on the market. It, what, you know, it wasn't a bad market. It wasn't a terrible market, but things got a little slower. You've, you, yeah. you, we we talked about it at some sales meetings and there was discussion about the, the impact of, of rates. And the difference though now is, I mean, think of what prices were then compared to right. now. I mean, we're, we're up probably 40% since then, yeah. 35% since 17. So now you've got, you've got high prices, you've got high in, interest rates. I mean, that's a tax on people's wallets. And I was going to say, I don't remember a time ever when we've had rapidly rising rates and rapidly rising house prices. And maybe the two of you know, but I can't, I mean, I've been doing this for almost 30 years and I can't recall that ever being the case before. Yeah. It's funny. It's, it's a good point too, Mark. You hear a lot of old timers, bless their hearts, but they're like, well, when I got in the business, mortgage rates were at 14%. You might be one of those, Joe. <laughs> but, <laughs> Not that but old. Thing, but I got in is, around eight, seven, seven were and like, a half houses were like forty, fifty thousand $50,000. So, right. I mean, we've had this massive run-up in home prices. And if you have a, a massive subsequent run-up in interest rates, it's hard to understand how the, how the, the economy can, can sustain that, right? Yeah. There's got, something's got to give. And the thing that makes the most sense would at some point be house prices, right? Absolutely. Which isn't a, I don't know if that's a terrible thing. A lot of this isn't, I'm not all saying this is doom and gloom. I think a lot of us would agree that the housing market was a little too hot and it probably wouldn't hurt it to have a little bit of a wet blanket on it. Even, even a, maybe a misty blanket, a, a, a <laughs> something, right? Well, and just one thing too, that is, is worth mentioning too, is that the bond market really reacts to things that aren't expected. So for example, the Fed was expected to raise rates by a quarter percent. So there's probably not going to be a big reaction to that. If the Fed had raised them by a quarter, I mean, excuse me, a half instead of a quarter, you probably would have seen rates get worse. And if the Fed had like, kept them at the same, you probably would have seen rates get better. Um, just a couple recent examples. When Brexit happened, no one thought that was a thing. Right. And so if you looked at a chart that shows the bond market, you would see this one day where the bond market just spiked up like 200 points or something ridiculous in one day. It's because it was an unexpected event. And, you know, you saw an immediate reaction from the bond market. And again, this is not political. But if you go back to when Trump was elected, like the night before, when we started to understand what was going to happen, a lot of the stock futures were going down. They weren't going up. So a lot of us thought, okay, this is going to be something where the bond market tomorrow is going to be better and we're going to see even cheaper rates. And the opposite happened. In basically three days, the rates went up by three quarters of a percent. And that's, you know, that's a lot in three days. And so basically from November of 2016 till about November of 2018, rates were getting worse overall. And then from November of 2018 until about December of, of 2021, rates were overall getting better. We had a really long period of time where rates were improving. And, you know, previously, I don't know exactly what that two-year history looks like as far as like the impact on the market at that time. But like you were saying, Steve, it seemed to me like it changed people's behavior. 
I know that 17 and 18 were not my best years by any stretch of the imagination, but I know that like you were saying earlier, 20 and 21, just about any loan officer, and I don't know if this extends to realtors as well, but for sure, just about any loan officer that you talk with is going to say that 20 and 21 were their two best years that they've ever had. Mm -hmm. And Joe made a good point. I want to reiterate what Joe said. When rates spike initially, it does speed up the market. There yeah. are sideline players that rush in and go, oh my gosh, this is scary. You know, these homes that are already so expensive I, that I can barely afford are going to be out of my reach or they're going to be more expensive. And so there is an immediate glut to the market. I would say we're still feeling. Now, how long does that last? I think is the, the million dollar question, right? Because yeah. um, at some point, those people, those sideliners have done their thing. And then there's an interesting term in real estate. It's motility, right? Starts to come into play. Motility is the velocity of movement, right? If there's a bunch of people out there with homes that are 3% mortgage rates that are kind of thinking, they're scratching their head and they're like, hey, um, we could use another bathroom. Oh, rates are at five and a half. Nah, we'll make the kids wait in line. <laughs> or, and there's, there's a thousand conversations like that that could happen. And so you eventually could feel a slowdown across housing where people like the rate they have and don't want to move, even though maybe otherwise they would have, right? Yeah. Well, and one thing just to bring up that may help explain some of the resiliency, and this is, again, just off of personal observation. So in 2006 and 2007, in those years, a lot of the people that would come to me as a loan officer would be very much at the top of their limit. You know, maybe they're even doing like a 40 year mortgage or maybe they're doing an interest only loan, but they were really pretty much either at the maximum amount they could do, or in some cases they were even doing stated income loans to try to make things work. Most of the people that we're seeing right now, I would say like 95% of the people that I've interviewed in the last two years are still purchasing below their maximum. And in a lot of cases I'll say, look, you know, we're the same crazy bastards that the destroyed the economy the last time. On paper, we would say that you could qualify for an $800,000 house. And here's what your payment would be. And in a lot of cases, their conversation would be like, dude, you are smoking crack. There is no way I want to have that high of a payment. I want my payment to be this, which is going to be, say, a $600,000 sales price. So some of the resiliency that's going on may be because people still have capacity as far as their ability to afford a higher payment. Like Joe earlier, I just did some chicken scratch here, but you know, difference of you know one and a quarter percent in a rate for a six hundred thousand dollar mortgage is around four hundred and twenty bucks. That's quite a lot. That's substantial, and, right? And and the change of the maximum loan amount to six forty seven two, I think that's also responsible for how much of a that we haven't had to slow down as much because people had almost a hundred thousand dollars more purchasing power based on the new loans uh, mm -hmm. loan limits in our area. So. I guess the question, though, is just like what you guys are saying, what are we going to see? At what point do people's behavior start changing moving forward? I remember when the rates were going down and we would all call our past clients and say, hey, now might be a great time to sell your house and buy. Rates go down, prices go up, you can sell and get more, and then you can buy something for that lower rate. But it's also an opportunity with our referral partners that are lenders to say, hey, Maybe you can refi. And, and they always say, well, what does that look like? And you, you, put the two in, you put the two in touch. And it's just a math problem. It's like, we refi your house from this rate to this rate. And, and that has a cost and it's X amount of dollars. And then they do a, a crossing X where yeah. how many months do you have to go at your new payment to 
you're even. And then every month you live in the house after that, you're saving a substantial amount of money. So the first question is, how long do you plan on being in the house? And if you're going to be there longer than where those two intersect, then you're money ahead. But those days are gone because I think the <laughs> rates are going the other way. And hey, one thing we forgot, Steve, all this talk about gambling on the economy and what's happening and, and predictability, we didn't talk about our Masters in Real Estate March Madness bracket. And I hate to segue uh, the podcast, but we only have, what, 21 hours or so to get our bracket done? Because the moment the game start, your bracket is locked. So you cannot procrastinate. You got to do it now. And it's fun. We have some giveaways, some money and prizes. I, I, we don't know what I'm, it is. I'm kicking in $100 to the winner. And we're talking to some other people. There'll be, there'll be a prize. There'll be a meaningful prize. It's ESPNTournamentChallenge.com, right? ESPN Masters. Challenge. There, there's yeah. a post with all Brian the information. made made the post, and then he has the link to where to go, and then you just you just click on that, and then it walks you through how to. There's no cost to do that part, and there is no cost to it. Just the the person with the winning bracket, they'll get some kudos on Masters first and foremost, and they'll get to hopefully it's not Brian Belair's, but they'll get to thump their chest and tell Brian that they beat him. That's Hopefully right. Me. <laughs> and they'll get some of his money and, and some other prizes. And I didn't mean to segue. That was good. It was good. So <laughs> gambling. Um, that was that was the uh, that was the defining. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mark. So I got some questions. We got about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes left. With what's going on, since since inflation is happening, but the demand is still there and the low inventory is still there, a lot of times we're getting beaten up with offers. And there's a fear, if you look at it in, in reverse, there's a fear that homeowners have a home and they don't want to put their house on the market because they'll get a dozen offers, it'll sell in a New York second, and then they'll be homeless. They know how hard it is to buy. And there are programs out there where homeowners with enough equity can go out there and buy the house first and look like a cash buyer, buy the house, move in, get settled maybe uh, paint it and get new carpet, move in, then stage their old home and sell it after the fact. I know there's different programs like Bridge Loans and the company Knock has a program. I, I There was a, a New American Funding or something has something. How viable are these and how easy are these things to go through from the starting line to the finish line? I mean, is it doable? and are those programs worth it? I think um, my only experience with one so far is we had a buyer that was buying a place up in Seattle and they used a program that that company went in and bought the house for cash and then charged the client 10 grand and then turned around and then sold it to them as the seller. Mm -hmm. At the same price, the, the fee is 10 grand. Yeah. They didn't juice the price at all. Right. Okay. So, it, it, I mean, I've had a limited experience with this so far. I mean, as much as our market's been crazy, I'm grateful that we're not San Francisco or Seattle where things are even more bananas. But that was uh, the way that that one worked. I know that I see things like fly homes and some of these different things. I know that I think it was Summit Mortgage Company in Washington 
I think they have some sort of a, a program that they can do there as well. What I can tell you though, is even in the good old days, if there was such a thing back in the mid 2000s, when the bridge loans were the most, I guess, aggressive as they've ever been, it still wasn't ever as good as what people thought it was going to be. It's like, it's one of those things where it sounds good and then you get all the details and then it's not as quite as good as what you were hoping for. But what we used to have back in the day is that we would go off of 80% of the list price and that would be the amount that would be given as the bridge. And then they would have six months to pay it back. But the advantage back then was that you didn't have to count the bridge loan payment in qualification. And what I see with most places, even when it's a, you know, like a bridge HELOC, for example, Banner Bank has got a good bridge HELOC product that they'll, that they'll do. The challenge is that as a lender, we're qualifying people in a lot of cases for three mortgages. So if, if they've got the ability financially to qualify for all three, then people that are more, I guess, traditional with programs like myself will have something for it. I'm not really sure how some of those other programs work, like knock or some of those other, other situations. Well, but- I, I think that part of it is part of the benefit is you purchase, you sell, take your equity, merge it together without like a refi fee. It's just like, Hey, once you sell this, we blend it together yeah. Reamortize your thing because if you had to refi, then that's just another added. It's called cost. recasting. Yeah, that's recasting, called recasting. Yeah. Where, and we 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 see that a lot, and a lot of lenders do this. A lot of lenders do this. Hopefully, most good lenders have an ability to do this, where you help somebody buy their house, maybe with a minimal down payment before they sell. Then they sell. Now they've got a windfall from that sale that they want to put into the new house. But rather than having that huge payment that was pegged to the original down payment, there's a recast where you have a new payment recast, re- reconfigured moving forward based on the new you know, down payment that happened after the fact. That's part, part um, of the program already. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure and Mark, you have something have, like that, right? Yeah. Most lenders will. But one thing I just want to have as a caveat that everyone should know about is that you can't get recast for government loans. So if it's a VA, if it's FHA, if it's USDA, I mean, the likelihood of that being the case anyway is pretty low. But in those cases, lenders will not do recasts. And most lenders will not do recasts on jumbo loans either. So as long as someone is doing a conventional loan, you can do that. So just to piggyback on what you're saying, Steve, um, it's like it's cheap. And in a rapidly rising environment for rates, it's great because you keep the rate that you already have. And then, because normally if you do a large product, you know, reduction in principle, say hundred grand, yes, you'll drop the mortgage insurance, but you're still stuck at the same payment. The difference is now instead of paying for like 30 years now, because of that big, massive cash infusion, now you're paying maybe 18 years or 20 years. So the recast, you have to go directly through the lender that's servicing the loan. And it does take some time to do it. I would recommend getting the loan officer on a conference call and that you worked with. And basically you call up and you let them know that you want the payment reconfigured. You don't want the uh, the term of the loan to be shortened. You want the payment to be recalculated. And it's like a hundred bucks to 300 bucks, depending on the lender. It's way cheaper than a refi. And it, cause I mean, yeah. refis are great, but you should avoid them unless it really, really benefits the consumer. So yeah. I have two questions. Well, one's a Steve question. Uh, one's a Mark question. Not it. State of, the union, State of the Union on love letters. I heard oh. that it got bonked at the higher level because it goes against First Amendment rights. And then uh, Mark- I haven't heard anything since that post. But I haven't heard, big... and I don't know if it's legal or not now. There was a stay or something by a federal judge because that's an Oregon law. And the federal judge deemed it that it was a violation of freedom of speech, which 
which makes some sense, right? Somebody's just trying to talk to, you know, through, through a letter saying, Hey, here's who I am. And here's what I, I'm doing. Obviously there's fair housing laws. Obviously they can't violate the fair housing laws. They can't say pick me because I'm X, Y, Z, but, but at that aside, why can't two human beings communicate? Right. And the yeah. part about the love letters, I didn't understand. I was, you and I, and Brian Belairs were texting about this, like how do Fizbo's navigate that? Right. Like huh. if you're a Fizbo, you're telling us realtors, we can't pass a, com- a line of communication from the buyer to the seller. Well, the freaking Fizbo is belly to belly with the buyer. So how's that policed and how's that fair? And is that a disadvantage to us as realtors? Because now say you have a seller and they're, and say you have a seller and they have a special property. It's been in the family 50 years and they just want to know who the heck's going to get it and love it. Right. Which seems, doesn't seem crazy. Right. Do they have to Fizbo? There's a lot of moving parts to it. And I don't know what's, that anything's 100% for sure yet. I wasn't a big fan of that. I, I also didn't like, what I didn't like about the saying no love letters was I think it had unintended consequences hurting the very people it was tr- intended to protect, right? If you can't tell the story of the buyer, then it just becomes about the money and how much down they have. Well, in that case, you know, the minorities, the less affluent, they're going to be the ones that are going to get hit the hardest because they have the, the least money in those situations oftentimes. If you get an offer on your listing today, you get an offer on your listing and a love letter is included with it, do you present that to your seller? I don't think I would. I, I think we all started just communicating outside of a love letter is what I've experienced where we're just letting the agent know, you know, they love this about the house. They love the backyard. They want this. They, you know, they love what you did with the kitchen without having a love letter. So I can't conclusively say that I'm going to give a love letter to somebody yet because I just haven't heard enough about it. But my hope is that there is something to that because we're the only state that did that. And again, not to be political, Mark, but sometimes this overzealous state does stupid things. We all know that, right? In the name of, you know, in the name of inclusivity and and other things, I know they mean well, but they sometimes go off the rails and, and go too far in the wrong direction and have unintended consequences that defy common sense, right? So I think this is one of those things. So it's interesting to see, and it'll be interesting to watch. You know, it's interesting because this isn't talked about, but a lot of times clients getting their loans approved depends on how well their letters are written. In many cases, not all of our clients are as good with the written word as others. So I would imagine that there's probably a pretty high percentage of uh, letters that are edited by loan officers and the same kind of thing could be called into... What's that? Realtors too. Yeah. So, I mean, the same kind of thing could be called into question there. Are we gaming the system? But the other side of it, though, is if you don't assist your clients in that in that manner, because, you know, again, a lot of times clients don't think like underwriters. They don't know how the process works. Sometimes our job is to help guide them through that process. And sometimes part of that process could be saying, you know, look, your, your letter's great, but it would be more effective if you changed a few things. I don't know, man. I, I don't, it's, I've never had anybody talk to us about the letters, but I could see that we could probably have a very similar thing on our end as well. So... I say the people that govern the real estate forms graduate from the school of redundancy school, right? right. So yeah. when I started, an offer was on one page yeah. and I submitted an offer the other day and with advisories and disclosures and 
all of this stuff, disclaimers, it was like 70 pages. And it's like, hey, we need to have a disclosed limited agency form. So we have one. That's one page. But you also have to have this other three-page pamphlet that describes that thing. And it just got longer and longer and longer. And I don't know if they're legal or not. I know it got squashed on a higher level for First Amendment rights. But if you talk about this redundancy in the listing itself, it says you cannot refuse to accept an offer based on race, color, creed, religion, if they're a Lakers fan, if they grew up in Canada, uh, Mark. (laughs) Actually, those aren't protected classes. You can definitely discriminate if they're a Lakers fan. Um, (laughs) We're Canadian. I guess national origin. Hey, um, you made a good point, Joe. We've talked about this because there was a lot of threads about this over the years. I mean, there's cameras in all houses or many, many houses have ring cameras. So you're trying to put a genie in a back in the bottle that just doesn't work in there. Again, this is not okaying. No one's no one's advocating that there's discrimination, but people, if they want to know who the buyer is, they can Google their name. They can look on Facebook for their name. They can look at their ring camera. They can look at their nanny cams. There's a million different ways they can figure out to take a hammer and hit this one little tiny thing that was just allowing a story to be told about why the house means something to them. I once joked, you know how they have that stupid show, The Masked Singer? Yeah. That the only way, if we're really going down this path, and this isn't just lip service, because I think that's where I get a little frustrated. Sometimes these little these little endeavors by by government are lip service. It's intended to look like we are the front runner in not being discriminatory. If they really want to go down this path and they really want to um, absolutely make sure there's no discrimination in housing, then what we're going to do is we're going to make our buyers put paper bags over their faces with little tiny eye holes for the showings. And we're going to black out their names and take out their names off the contract. It's just going to be a little X and we're and they're going to have the mask singer type outfits when they go to showings. And that's going to be how we do this. It's not just banning love letters. So, you know, what's interesting, there's something that nobody talks about that is a real thing. We have two of our brokers in our company uh, were law enforcement. And if you are a seller and you have cameras and audio listening devices, that needs to be disclosed, posted. People need to know that. That is, uh, even though when you're a homeowner and you're doing it in your own home, that's a little bit different. There's a little bit more leniency, but if you're on the market, you really have to disclose that. And they were both adamant about it. And we're working on some sort of form that talks about that. To shift gears, I know we got like four minutes left. (laughs) Mark, the question specifically for you, in our market, everyone's talking about we're going way over list price and the seller wants to see uh, the, the buyer responsible for the appraisal gap. We've heard chirpings that there are companies out there that have programs or products that may account for an appraisal gap. Have you heard about that and have experience working with that? I wanted to talk about this. I emailed you guys. I've had four or five low appraisals in the last two weeks. A couple of those are my buyers. A couple of those are my sellers that I'm representing. So I'm on both sides of this. I'm And, and surprisingly... I wasn't having that many issues before, right? For as crazy as house prices have been for some time now, 
And as, as little as current comps mean to future prices, in other words, we're putting deals into escrow where there's no comps to justify them. And we have been for a while. Appraisals have been working pretty good. I mean, you know, we were getting a lot of values. I'd say maybe 10% of the time, 20% of the time we were having an issue. In the last two weeks, that number has dramatically increased. And now that could be an outlying thing for me, but I don't know. Do you have thoughts on this, Mark? You're you're in that world. You know, I'm, I'm only bringing up the numbers so that I can show the percentage. I mean, our team did about 375 loans last year. And of that, we had 11 low appraisals. Mm-hmm. So it was a very small amount. And even with those, a couple of them, we were able to remedy by, you know, switching to a different lender, getting a new appraisal. The challenge is that as much as the collateral piece is the most important part of the whole transaction, or at least that's what we're told, it's the most random ass system that I've ever seen in my career. I mean, you've got this magical piece of paper called a sales agreement that has such a huge amount of influence over the whole thing. I mean, you talk about love letters, well, let's just eliminate sales prices altogether and see what the appraisal is going to come in then. You know what I mean? You've got a situation where let's just say that the loan officer misses a, an addendum changing the sales price from 550 to 575. Nine times out of 10, the appraisal is going to come in at 550 or very close to that. But if you give the addendum, it comes in at 575. The whole system is, in my opinion, just at this point, it's it's a game. I mean, I don't know how to tell you or anyone why in some cases it works, in some cases it doesn't. It It just, I think it depends on the appraiser. I think it depends on, to a certain extent, the comps. But Steve, I don't know, man. We, we had one of our realtor partners that we work with that had four in a week as well. And then nothing since then. Maybe and that may be the case. That may be the case. Yeah, I'm, right? I'm just not having a bad week. Yeah. But. And, and, but to go back to Joe's situation, in a lot of cases, like it's, it's like when lenders advertise a product with no mortgage insurance. They're just giving a product with a higher interest rate and the mortgage insurance is hidden in the higher rate. Most of the time in order for someone to qualify for any kind of like, no matter what kind of deal, they're gonna have to have some amount of a down payment. Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 15%. So that if the value does come in lower, yeah, the mortgage insurance is gonna increase, for example, but they can still proceed forward because the lender is gonna do their loan amount based on the lower of the value or the appraised value. So someone doing 20% down, the value could come in literally 15% lower than the sales price and they're still at a 95% loan. So they're okay. That's the only thing I can think of is when they're doing those sorts of guarantees that they've, they've got to have some way of hardwiring that kind of stuff in there so that if it does come in low, they're basically eating it through lender paid mortgage insurance or there's some way of doing it to where they're not actually really taking a loss. I haven't been really watching the chat because when I click on it, oh. <laughs> uh, my volume goes on and then we have a feedback thing. But for the people who are driving in their car a week from today, listening to this, we have lots and lots of live viewers right now. And Amber Dennis said the judge suspended the ban on love letters. So it looks like all bets are off. If you wanted to do a love letter, uh, I think you can. Ariel D'Angelo says Key Bank will recast jumbos. So that's kind of uh, new info. And, and she's a good uh, lender and she knows her products and key key bank definitely. Uh, and that's the thing with jumbos, by the way, it's just, it's their own rules. It's their money. They can do whatever the hell they want. So yeah, it's good to know. Well, I think uh, it's time to put a pin in it. Any final comments, Steve, you got anything? No, I'm, 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 I'm fresh out. Mark, this was great. Thank you for, thank you for being on. Thank you for all you share in the, the master's group. 
let's have you on again some sometime soon. <laughs> yeah. Fast and furious. We covered a lot of stuff in a short period of time, and it's all things that realtors need to know from the lender and market perspective. So I think it was a good show. We just got a, this was interesting from Amber Dennis. So thank you for that. And thank, and another thanks from Gil Patrick. So awesome. Oh, I know cat. Okay. So I'm going to stop live stream. Um, have a great day, everybody. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Portland Real Estate Podcast, Oregon and Washington's number one show for cutting edge real estate discussions. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the members of Masters in Real Estate, a private and exclusive Facebook group and the number one source for all real estate topics. Thanks for being there, gang. I love you. Finally, I want to thank our faithful listeners. Without an audience, we're just two guys talking to each other. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so the new episodes automatically come to you. Make it great.